Well, this is a Trinity Sunday, if you hadn't figured, and um, you know, the Trinity is one of those things where you think, you know, this is sort of an abstract doctrine, and how does it really work, and you know, why would we have a Trinity Sunday, and you know, just one of those things that's not easy to figure out, and uh, church can be that way. I, the other day, was at a wedding, and the wedding party had all come forward, you know, the beautiful moment where the bride walks down, and she's standing there in this lovely, huge, white dress, and and this little girl says to her mom, Mommy, why is the bride wearing white? And the mom says, Well, it's because it's like the happiest day of her life. And then the little girl looks at her mom and says, Well, then why is the groom wearing black? <laughs> so, you know, these things are just, they're, they're just not intuitive. A, a little boy was at church and, and, you know, he'd been at church enough to kind of know the basic routine, but, you know, you're really comfortable with it. And he's sitting there, and the, the minister's going on and on and on with this boring sermon. Finally, the little boy says to his mom, Mom, if we give him the money now, will he shut up? <laughs> like, can we just take the offering? You know, will that make him stop? So, you know, the, the Trinity is, I know, sort of like that. It's, it, we all kind of know something about it. We might know how to articulate it a little bit. But why is it a big deal? Why would the church, for hundreds and hundreds of years... Sort of take a pause. That's what, that, what, what Trinity Sunday really does is it makes kind of a pause or a bridge between Advent through Pentecost. So with Advent through Pentecost, the church celebrates with joy and thanksgiving what the Father has done, what the Son has done, and what the Spirit has done to accomplish all of our salvation. And so again, you know, we might think of the Father as God for us, you know, the Creator. We might think of God the Father as love. We might think of the Son as being with us or, you know, the beauty of His sacrifice and, and Him being our Redeemer. We might think of the Spirit of being in us and His power and the one who sanctifies us. So then during the season after Pentecost, we now turn a corner and we focus on responding to the love that God has shown us. So I don't usually necessarily tell you titles for sermons, but in my own head, uh, a, t- a title for this sermon might be something like the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, as a basis for spiritual transformation. Because what this Sunday invites us to do is to stop and think about the reality in which we're pursuing Christ, the, the, the very nature of reality. And so this is a transitional day that bridges these two parts of the liturgical year. The first part, helping us see what God has done for us. The second part of the year, helping us to see how we respond to that. And we, we do so, we make that transition through this Sunday called Trinity Sunday. And so, uh, since we, we do have to talk about this, here's, sorry, here's some tough language for 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning, but nevertheless, here's, here's one way of trying to think clearly about the Trinity as a way of thinking about this is the reality that we live in, and this comes from something called the Athanasian Creed. Are you ready? This one part of the Creed that's so important says this, we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Now, how's this for language on a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock? Neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. Y'all get that, right? Neither confusing the persons. What, what, the, what the early um, formers of this doctrine were trying to say, they were trying to make sense of the mystery of this God who is unity but exists in these three persons. And what they were very sort of anxious to make sure that we got right is that we understood the threeness, but that we never let that threeness lead us sort of in our imaginations or our concepts to something that wasn't essentially one. So for the Father is one person, the Creed says, the Son is another, the Holy Spirit is another, but the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one. The glory of all of them is equal, the majesty of all of them 
co-eternal. So really the big idea I want us to get this morning is that spiritual formation does not flow first and foremost from our brokenness or our sin or the places where we don't feel very formed in Christ or where we feel malformed or something. Obviously, we're aware of those things, but that's not where it best starts. Where spiritual formation best starts is who God is, His nature. And the reason I like the Trinity is a, a way to think about Trinity Sunday this morning as a basis for spiritual transformation is because in the Trinity, we see something about the nature of God. First, that He is relational. And it just teaches us that spiritual formation is not a solo sport. It's not like golf. It's much more like basketball or hockey. It's something that happens together. And the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron and communities, you know, shaping each other and helping people to to understand truth. And so the relational nature of the Trinity, it's loving, gracious, mutually submissive. Did you catch that? Those three persons are equal in glory and majesty and co-eternal. And so there's a mutual submission that finds its unity in the will of God. So again, I'm sorry for the big words, but you know, th- theologians like to talk about the economic subordination in the Trinity, you know, meaning the, the Son carries out the will of the Father. We just read this morning that the Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. And so are, there are these sort of embodied... Um, practices or evidences of, the, of God as a trinity. But essentially what's happened there, what, what keeps it all together is a unity of will. So the trinity is more than just a, a difficult doctrine. And in fact, what I want to say this morning is that spiritual formation is the process of saying yes to God's invitation to participate in this divine dance. That's one of the best ways that theologians have tried to understand the Trinity. They tried to understand it as some sort of dance, meaning that there's movement, there's relationality, but what keeps all that working together and what keeps it coherent is that there's a very strong, simple, focused unity of will. Or you might think of the word plan or unfolding story or agenda or the purposes of God. That's what keeps it all unified. And as we said last week when we were talking about uh, Pentecost, When Jesus said to his first followers, as you go, teach people everything I have taught you, teach them to do all that I've taught you to do, and then baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, that was not so much giving us a kind of um, uh, liturgical form, though it does, and I'm perfectly happy with that. But it's not merely that. What Jesus was really saying is, as you go, and you try to help people see what we've all been doing the last three years, immerse them in this Trinitarian reality. Because the fundamental nature of reality is this Trinitarian God. That's what lies behind everything that's in the unseen world, is God. Behind the veil, as people say, is this God who exists in Trinity. Now, this is how this immediately gets connected to spiritual formation. Anybody who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart, we'll probably not ever really follow him. If you don't think he actually knows how human sexuality best works, you will probably not submit your sexuality to him. Because there's all these other competing interests, my needs, my desires, my wishes. I can't help it. I feel like I was born this way. And I'm not picking on any one group of people when I say that. I mean, this is the basic sort of fundamental rationale. This seems native to me. 
And so if all we've got to go by is, and I would, because I would talk about this nativeness of just sort of embodied sin, you know, sin that's sort of in our DNA. If that's all we've got to go by, that I can't help it, this seems native to me, then we're toast. But if you can see that what lies beyond and past but includes what seems native to us is this Trinitarian reality, and, and the invitation of God is, the basic fundamental invitation of spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness is this, immerse your life into the Trinitarian reality. Because once you do that, what happens? You become a dance partner. Now you're in this dance. So now I just want you to take your life, your, your actual life. Okay, everybody, picture your actual life. You're getting up, walking around, going to work life. I want you to think about that life. And now picture it in this dance with the Trinity. That's what Jesus was saying. Invite people in. Immerse them into the reality of what's happening in, in the Trinity. Now what happens as soon as you do that? What did I just say keeps the three persons of the Trinity whole? A unity of what? Does anybody remember? A unity of will. And that's the basis. That's the fundamental first step of spiritual transformation is you begin to take your will or you begin to take the kingdom, you might say, that God's given you, that is to say your capacity to act, your ability to be human, the strength that you have to drive a car, to push buttons, you know, to just be socially human. You take that, you immerse it in this reality, and then what begins to happen to your life is you find yourself aligning your will to God's. That is fundamental to spiritual transformation. And I just want to say Trinity Sunday gives us a perfect time to stop and ask as we celebrate, the first, as we finish celebrating the first half of our liturgical year. Here's what God the Creator intended when He created. Here's how the Son redeemed us. And last Sunday, here's how and why the, the Holy Spirit fills us. And now we kind of stop, we look at that, and what the rest of the year teaches us to do is then take our, to obey Matthew 28, to take our little life, our getting up, walking around, eating, sleeping, going to work life, and place it into the reality of the dance of the Holy Trinity and what they're up to. And so for the rest of the liturgical year now, we just sort of practice, and we read together scriptures, and we sing songs, and we say prayers that help us align our life with what the Trinity's doing. So let me say again, anybody who has to hesitate before, Jesus is saying, before saying Jesus is smart is not likely to follow him. And now here's the second point. Anyone who does not see clearly, and I don't mean intellectually, I mean, I, I would not say that, you know, I have the intellectual last word on the mysteries of the Trinity. That's not what I mean. But anybody who does not see in the sense of believing that what lies behind tragic sickness and death, what lies behind, you know, horrible oil spills or bombs that go off in markets in Baghdad, or smart bombs that go arise and, and kill an innocent Lebanese family instead of the terrorists we are looking for. And what, unless one believes that what lies behind that is a good, holy, creator God, a redeeming son, and an empowering spirit, you will not follow him. Why would you? This is why the theologians have been so desperate for years to say this God that we all worship in the Trinity is not just transcendent. He's not just all-powerful. He's also good, and he's eminent. 
which is just a big word to say he's present with us. And so when we sing songs or pray prayers like Carrie prayed this morning, come Holy Spirit, we're not actually asking him to be here. Because what's one of the basic fundamental doctrines of God? He is what? Omnipresent. So he's here. When we pray, come Holy Spirit, we're saying, God, make yourself manifest. We want to know that you're here. You see, the psalmist, Jonah, as we talked about, if you got here late, I'm sorry, ask your friend. But, you know, the psalmist, Jonah, the vision of Isaiah, the vision of John in Revelation, the understanding of of Jesus wants the disciples to get in John are all the notion that there is a reality here. And when you see it, you feel your automatic sort of inadequacy and you, you automatically see your sin. That's the first step in any kind of genuine conversion is you're suddenly aware of your sin like Isaiah was or the psalmist was. But see, they all see these visions. They know that behind all that, is this really good God who sits on a throne, Revelation, who exists in this amazing atmosphere in Isaiah, who the psalmist says his voice breaks the powers of, of you know, the cedars of Lebanon, which this is a, a big metaphor for, um, it's kind of a poetic way of saying that behind all this is this amazing power of God. And that's what we're trusting in when we start taking steps towards spiritual formation. We're not taking... Uh, ultimate trust in our own disciplines, though I've got disciplines, and I'm sure many of you do too. But that's not what we ultimately trust. We certainly don't ultimately trust what we do here together. We trust that what we're doing here together is sort of like practice. It, It engages us with this other reality that we might not normally see. But as we see it, and as we trust in the goodness of God, the redeeming of the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit, that begins to lead us along. So what all these people are doing this morning, the psalmist with the cedars of Lebanon, Isaiah with his vision of God, uh, John on Patmos with his vision of uh, what's happening around the throne. They're all trying to say the same thing to us. The world is not spinning out of control. I know it can seem like it when a hit song is pants on the ground. But the world is not actually uh, out of control, even if Simon does leave American Idol. Um... By the way, did you know our dear friend Cindy was actually there for the closing show? And Steve, too, did you see them sort of breakdancing in the aisle with, with uh, Ryan Seacrest? That was them. They, they, they were uh, actually there. Um, you know, it's just the world is not actually spinning out of control in what the psalmist and what Isaiah is seeing, because, again, I don't have time to really go into this, but when Isaiah sees that vision, Israel is at one of the most vulnerable places it's ever been in its life. It was about to be overrun and did, in fact, get overrun by the Assyrians. And it seemed like the world was out of control. To John, the last of the living disciples, when Christians were being massively persecuted, it did seem as if the world was out of control. But they knew that the invitation of Jesus was to immerse themselves in a life, this Trinitarian life, in which they were fundamentally safe. That's the big message. If you don't think that Jesus is smart, and if you don't think that the world is fundamentally a safe place, not a dangerous and evil place, then you will not follow the God who says he creates it and sustains it. Why would you? Come on, think about it. Why would you? 
And I think that what happens to some of the fits and starts of our spiritual formation is this kind of thing is not like really sort of rooted, grounded in us in a, in a deep and abiding way. So all this language of, especially in the psalm this morning, all this language of, you know, Lebanon and trees falling and being stripped and all that, they're trying to talk about God's unrivaled authority and power. Because what always happens, and, and I have to say that it, it has not happened too much to us because we've lived in, you know, up until now at least, very blessed times. I think I might have told you the story of in 1991, Debbie and I moved to Virginia Beach to take a ministry post. And it was right when the first Gulf War was ending. And so, you know, we're, we're living right next door to the largest naval air station in America. So we couldn't actually see the aircraft carriers because they were kind of over the horizon. But we would see the formations of the planes coming back. Sixteen of them at a time. It was beautiful. And these sets of fours. And one would peel off and land at, what's it called? The Naval Air Station there in, in Virginia Beach. I can't remember. But uh, they would land. And we would stand on the beach. Our house was right on the beach. And we'd stand on the beach and we'd watch them. And it was awesome. And I'm standing there watching it one day. And all of a sudden I realized how American I was. Because suddenly I had this vision of a little boy in, you pick the country, Lebanon, for whom that is not a beautiful sight. All he knows is something fell out of the air that killed my whole family. Well, so when he sees an F-14, he's not standing there with great pride. He's standing there in fear. Well, that's the way most of the world lives. And so when they know that, well, there's this voice, though. There's this reality, there's this Trinitarian reality in which we're all safe. See, that's the message that Isaiah's hearing. That's the message that, um, that John's hearing as he, as he sees this vision of the throne in heaven. And that's what the psalmist is trying to convey to us. It's poetic language. Most of you in the room are old enough to remember Petula Clark. You could probably sing with me. My love is warmer than the warmest sunshine, softer than a sigh. My love is deeper than the deepest ocean, right? Wider than the sky, right? Are you with me here? Well, what is that? I mean, come on, was her love really deeper than the deepest ocean? Was her love brighter than the brightest star that shines every night above? For there is nothing in this world that can ever change my, right? Is that right? Or is that, no, that's poetic language that says, hey, babe, I really dig you, <laughs> Right? I mean, but it's, you know, it's like reaching for language that somehow expresses the reality that we can't see. And that's what's happening in all of our readings this morning. Isaiah says, lying behind your pain and fear and injustice of the world is a holy God. And if you'll let him, he'll come near to you and he'll touch your lips. And you'll be made clean. And he'll send you into the world to be his agent of love and passionate justice for the sake of those for whom they do live in constant fear. The message of the psalmist is behind the fact that we find ourselves occasionally in exile because of our sin is a God who has the capacity to strip all that away, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The vision of John is that behind reality is this throne that's with all this unspeakably symbolic language. Well, they're just Petula, they're ancient Petula Clarks trying to convey the love and power and authority and difference-making God. That's what you need to know. If you're going to follow Jesus in any serious way, you have to know he's smart and you have to know that the Trinitarian reality in which he exists is the reality in which you were made to live. 
So almost every time somebody has said to me, Todd, how can it be so bad? It feels so good. I mean, I know I'm married. I know I shouldn't be sleeping with him and her. But when I'm with him or her, I feel more alive than I've ever felt. It feels so right. She makes me feel like me. Or he makes me feel like, you know, like I'm really a valued and accepted person. That's real stuff. And if it weren't real stuff, people would not continually to engage in extramarital affairs or whatever they do. Why? Because it's the only reality they know. But if that's the only life that you have, if you don't see that behind what makes you feel good lies this Trinitarian reality through which God is forming a people and inviting you to live in, if you've got that going for you, then you'll realize that it's there that I derive my fundamental life. Because do you want to know what's more fundamental than gender? You want to know what's more fundamental than body parts? You want to know what's more fundamental than sexuality? Which, in our day and age, you wouldn't think there's anything more fundamental than sexuality. But do you want to know what's more fundamental than, than gender or body parts or sexuality? What's more fundamental is humanness. Sexuality is a kind of, or sorry, um, gender is it's sort of a convenience or something. It's not the big deal. The big deal is humanness. People made in the image of this Trinitarian God and being invited to find their life, to derive their life, to live their life out of this Trinitarian reality so that they enter into this dance of God, this Father God who created a world and a people that would be fundamentally just and good. The son who saw it all go awry and incarnated himself in this fundamental humanness. This spirit who Jesus says, can you hear Trinity Sunday in that passage from John? I'm going to the Father and we are going to send the spirit. And so even the message of John is humanity finds its meaning not in sexual contact, not in economic goodness or badness, not in any kind of other social interaction. Humanity of either gender finds its most fundamental meaning in being human in the image of this holy trinity. And when you see that in Isaiah, in Revelation, Psalms, we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as John does, we ascribe to him worth when in Revelation it says that they began to worship him, the Greek word there actually means to ascribe worth. They began to find in, them, in themselves, in that image, in that vision of heaven, they began to find in themselves something more fundamental than their own needs. They found something that helped them deeply understand that the, that the cosmos is not fundamentally an out-of-control place, though it sometimes looks like it. But really what lies behind all that is this Trinitarian God who, again, invites us to find and derive our life from Him. And as we enter into that dance of the Holy Trinity and align our wills with Him, you know, I've told you before, one of my very favorite passages in the message, John 5 or 6, I can't remember, where Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and aligns him or herself with them has at this very moment received an eternal kind of life right at this very moment. Why? Because as you align yourself with God in that way, you do find fundamentally what it means to be human. You find the safety that every one of you in this room long for, and you find somebody smart enough 
and trustworthy enough that you can actually follow. And as you follow Jesus, you are doing spiritual transformation into his image. But you won't do it unless you see what the psalmist and Isaiah and John saw, that it's the fundamentally smart and safe thing to do. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.